This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Natasha Pulley discusses her new book, The Bedlam Stacks. Then PW Senior Religion Editor Lynn Garrett explores book trends in mind, body, and spirit. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. It's a very little happening on the hardcover fiction list. Uh, the highest debut that we have is number nine, and uh, that's The Crime Scene, the first book in the Clay Edison series by Jonathan Kellerman and Jesse Kellerman, father and son, bestselling author team. And uh, we don't have a review of this, but it starts uh, a series based around a former athletic star turned coroner's investigator who in this first book finds himself drawn into a complicated investigation around the death of a retired psychology professor. And uh, so that's what's going on at uh, number nine. And right below that at number 10 is Mrs. Fletcher by Tom Parada. We say uh, this book is about a, a 46-year-old woman who's divorced. Um, her son goes off to college. And then she gets a shocking anonymous email asking her for naked photos, which reawakens her sexual fantasies. And so this is about her sort of second bloom. And uh, you know, it turns out that her anonymous emailer is a 17-year-old, uh, one of her son's classmates. Oh. Uh, and uh, eventually there is a, uh, some, some exciting action happening that that leaves her learning all sorts of new things about herself. Uh, we say that Parada covers the gamut of sexual issues in this made-for-TV comedy of errors, and every character here exists in a state of constant sexual arousal, but the happy ending finds them all in satisfying relationships. Yeah, this has been getting a lot of coverage I've seen, and, and of course, coming off you know, after uh, the... Um series uh the leftovers he's got some uh, you know some followers so yeah but this is his first one since then so i think it's uh i think it's going to be very yeah. entertaining uh, a couple spots below that at number 12, we have Dragon Sworn, uh, the 28th book in Sherilyn Kenyon's Dark Hunters series. Uh, it, it's very difficult to talk about books like this because uh, this the series has just been going on for so long and is so intricate and so thoroughly developed that if you're not already immersed in it this is not the place to start but for fans of Kenyon's uh combinations of dark fantasy elements and romantic elements um this one is certainly another solid Good. entry and uh down at number 17 is Devil's Cut, the third Bourbon Kings book by J.R. Ward. Uh, Ward is sort of known for romances. This is a little bit of a, a different book. It's a family drama. This whole series is a family drama mm -hmm. set in Kentucky. 
Uh, there is a touch of romance. We still cover it in the romance section, but it's really not the focus. This is right. much more a soap opera about incredibly rich, terrible people. Mm. Okay. Uh, so if, uh, if that's your thing, uh, we say that uh, the third book in the series successfully ties every thread of romance-tinged Kentucky drama into several sparkly bows. Uh, the, the eldest son of the family uh, awaits arraignment for the murder of his father. He's uh, trying to figure figure out how to get out of jail and get back together with the love of his life. Uh, a, a woman who is pregnant by the murdered father is trying to figure out how to get a divorce from the son. And it, it, there's there's a lot happening. Uh, we say that Ward does the wealthy, dysfunctional family subgenre proud, skillfully portraying the stark contrast between the vapid, soulless characters and the sinful opulence of all the superficiality that money can buy. So if that's your thing, it's here in space. It's there. And uh, at number 21 is Less by Andrew Sean Greer. We gave this a starred review, calling it Wistful. In this book, a middle-aged writer accepts literary invitations from around the world, uh, from San Francisco to New York, Mexico, Italy, Germany, Morocco, India, and Japan, uh, just so that he will have an excuse not to attend the wedding of a longtime lover. And uh, he's not really known uh, for his own work, but for his lengthy romantic association with a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And uh, he's trying to sort of find himself as he embarks on this exploration. Uh, we say that uh, Greer is, he writes beautifully that the occasionally Faulknerian sentences are unnecessary, and he is entirely successful in the authorial slights of hand that make the narrator fade into the background, only to have an identity revealed in the end in a wonderful surprise. Great. And uh, finally, um, all the way down at number 22, On Her Majesty's Frightfully Secret Service by Reese Bowen. Um, this is the 11th Royal Spiness Mystery, which follows a, a lady who's 35th in line to the British throne to Italy in the spring of 1935. And this is a sort of Agatha Christie-like humorous mystery right. type. And uh, we called it amusing and said that the large cast includes horrible countesses, terrifyingly efficient ladies' maids, grim-faced nuns, and Nazis, both brash and bashful. So interesting historical yeah. setting uh, as the backdrop for this cozy mystery. That sounds good. That's what we've got. All right. Well, nonfiction, we have a cookbook that's at number one. Mm. And it's not necessarily by a household name, though it's from a best-selling author. This is Ready or Not! Exclamation point. 150 plus make-ahead, make-over, and make-now recipes by Nom Nom Paleo. So the, the first book, Nom Nom Paleo, was a uh, James Beard nominated by the creators of Nom Nom Paleo. And it was a New York Times best-selling cookbook. And here it is. Uh, Make ahead, nom nom paleo. Great cover, lots of uh, great illustrations, and that's it. Number one, number four. So we have a couple of conservative books here. But this is by Dinesh D'Souza, "The Big Lie: Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left," and that's at number four. He's a New York Times bestseller of Hillary's America and Obama's America, and then we have not. 
political, but this is a biography by Kate Fagan. Uh, she's an ESPN columnist. This is called What Made Maddie Run? The Secret Struggles and Tragic Death of an All-American Teen. And this is the story of uh, Maddie Holleran, who's a track runner at the University of Pennsylvania, who struggled with depression and combined with the pressure of sports, she committed suicide. In this book, Kate Fagan explores this process and what happens to young athletes uh, and specifically with uh, Maddie Holleran. And we say in a review, there are bits of analysis in which Fagan ties together a host of problems facing modern college-bound youth are the book's strongest points. Less helpful are Fagan's frequent attempts to recreate Maddie's thought processes. Nevertheless, Fagan's book is well-researched and the message is timely and important. Finally, at number 25, The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II by Don Brown. And we don't have a review of this, but this is uh, about Captain Jerry Yellen, who was, along with a small group of fighter pilots in 1945, flew dangerous uh, bombing uh, missions out of Iwo Jima over Japan. And that's at number 25. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Natasha Pulley tells us how she researched her fantasy novel set in 19th century Peru. We'll be right back. I'm Wallace Shawn, author of Night Thoughts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Natasha Pulley on the line. Her new book is The Bedlam Stacks. Natasha, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. So the central figure in this novel is Merrick Tremaine, a botanical expert, smuggler, and spy. Tell us a little bit about this fascinating figure. So he starts off, well, we meet him um, at a crumbling familial estate um, in Cornwall, which is in the very southeast of England. Um, And he lives in a place that still exists today. It's called the Lost Gardens of Heligan today. Obviously, then it wasn't lost. The book is set in 1859. Um, He comes from what was previously a really well-to-do family, but their wealth has just collapsed and collapsed. And now, um, the way that he's been brought up is very different. Um, He's much more used to making do. And at the start of the book, he's very unhappy and actually really quite miserable because he's come back from a mission abroad in India and he's been terribly injured. He can't walk very well anymore. Um, So he thinks that his life is over, even though he's only 30. He thinks he's got no real prospects and he's going to have to go away and be a parson somewhere tiny and boring. Um, And this all turns on his head when his best friend arrives with a strange proposal about an expedition to Peru. So tell us how he ends up journeying from England to not only Peru, but to the most remote areas of Peru and a little bit about what he finds there. Yeah, so in 1859, um, there was a terrible malaria crisis in India, and this was directly the problem of the British government because they owned most of India at this stage. Um, Tea was a huge part of revenue for the British Empire, but because malaria was thriving in very, very damp districts, it meant that it was rife in the tea fields. Workers were fleeing. So they were losing everything on the tea harvest because everyone was afraid of malaria. The only thing that would treat malaria in this period um, is quinine. And in this period, 
the only place that you could get quinine was from a particular tree that grows in a very, very remote district of the Peruvian and Bolivian Amazon. So both of those governments, Peru and Bolivia, realized that they had this incredible monopoly on a drug that the British Empire would pay through the nose for, um, and they put the price up and up and up. And at first, the British paid the price, but then realized rather quickly that it would be much more cost efficient to steal it and smuggle it and start their own plantation uh, in Sri Lanka than it would be to actually pay the Peruvians and the Bolivians. And that's exactly what they did. They put together an expedition of anthropologists and botanists, sent them out, said, take cuttings of this stuff, steal it and set it up in Sri Lanka where it's needed. And that's what Merrick does. This journey is influenced by uh, other people, his brother, his uh, boss at the East India Company, uh, his traveling companion, and Raphael, who's a Peruvian native and Catholic priest. Uh, The memory of Merrick's grandfather is also very important. Tell us about these men in his life. Um, So his brother is quite an important uh, formative influence. His brother's much older than he is, and his brother runs this kind of dilapidated estate. He doesn't like Merrick very much, um, because his brother is much more immersed in the older world and the older nobility, whereas Merrick is younger, he's grown up in the Navy, they're very, very different people. They, they hate each other, even though they love each other at the start. And it's his brother who Merrick is really fleeing from when he starts out on this expedition. His best friend um, is a guy called Clements Markham, and he was actually a real historical figure. He actually led this expedition. Um, And in the book, he's a very kind of colourful, confident, um, happy kind of person. But there is this kind of background of resentment because quietly he knows that Merrick is rather cleverer than he is and he doesn't like it at all. Meanwhile, Merrick's boss at the East India Company is a Korean guy called Isol Singh. And he is a hard-nosed trader and he hates the fact that the East India Company has just been nationalised into the India office and thinks it's daylight robbery. And he's kind of very snobbish and he hates he hates everything to do with it. Um, but he still thinks that Merrick is the best man for this job. And lastly, but I think most importantly, um, is Raphael, who is an, a native Peruvian uh, priest, Catholic priest, um, and there are lots of strange stories around him. And there are lots of links between him and Merrick's family that at first seem completely impossible when Merrick first arrives. So I'm curious about the relationship between Merrick and his brother. You said he had run away from him. Uh, there was uh, 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 something that happened before he left. Um, something had to do with his grandfather, I think, and a gravestone. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So um, the important thing in this, in, at the beginning of the book is that Merrick's mother is in a lunatic asylum, um, in a, a real one called Brislington. And she is there because she believes that a statue by Merrick's grandfather's grave has killed her dog. Um, and so the family just put this down to ordinary insanity, lock her up and forget about it. But at the start of the book, Merrick believes that the same statue has moved. Uh, he goes out to his greenhouse after a rainstorm and realizes that the stat- not only has the statue moved, but he thinks it's come inside and gone back out again. So he's very worried that he's going insane like his mother was. 
and his brother realizes and threatens him with the same asylum. So um, throughout the book, and really starting from that position, you have this tension between what is perception, um, whether it's insanity or hallucination. You know, when Merrick is suffering from altitude sickness, he's in a strange place where he doesn't really understand the customs or uh, the languages and um, and also the fantastical elements, the things that really are happening. Like you know, when it turns out that the statue really did move, um, how do you maintain that that tension, that question of is this real or am I nuts? <laughs> I think um, it's quite important with this kind of fantasy to to maintain the question of whether there really is fantasy going on or whether the main character is just going insane or, or having altitude sickness for as long as you possibly can. Because I think, um, you know, when you do finally reveal it to be fantasy, it's a bit more convincing because hopefully at that point, everyone kind of wants it to be fantasy. Whereas if you confirm that it is too quickly, often it's a sort of anticlimax. It's not so special. It's not so magic. Um, so I think for me, it's it's all about spooling that out, making it as slow as possible, so you get as much build up as you can. And um, how how did you do that? How did you pull all of these different elements together in in the book to keep that question a question? Well, I think one of the things I really enjoy about Bedlam is that all the fantasy is based on real Peruvian mythology. So when you um, you know, if you go to Peru and you ask people about, you know, do you think that stone is alive? Um, have you seen these things? They're called Makayuk. They're like little uh, stone figures that guard villages and so forth. Um, often people will say yes, even today. And Peruvian fairy tales are full of this stuff. And so if you, particularly in a novel, if you include something that looks like it really is faithful to local folklore, there's a kind of, there's a question where you go, oh yes, perhaps they're just including it because that is what uh, people in this place, in this time believe, or maybe it's real. So it's it's nice to take something that people really did believe in, um, because you have that kind of extra layer of credibility and you can, you can tease the doubt out for much longer, I think. And how do you handle that with respect? I mean, you you, you spent months in Peru doing research, but how do you handle... Um, real beliefs of real people uh, while turning it into uh, the stuff of fiction? So I I think that just because it's fiction doesn't mean it's not true in a way. Um, it's one of the main things for me is you have to go out there, you have to learn the language, talk to people and love it. And I think a lot of kind of horrible and disrespectful mistakes are made when kind of you some people don't quite appreciate how much this means to some people. And it's just, I don't know, I think if you treat it with fascination and you think it's wonderful, you're much more likely to treat it with sufficient respect than you do if you run over it roughshod and you use it in a completely mercenary way um, that has no, no nod to the cultural value. So tell us a little bit about what he experiences while in Peru, and of the developing relationship between him and uh, Raphael. Sure. Um, so the depiction of Peru is pretty accurate, or as far as I could make it, um, until they 
turn off the main river. So they, they cross the Andes over a real pass called Crucero. Um, they meet uh, a guy who's real, Don Martel, in a town just before the mountains. All the descriptions of things like Lake Titicaca are as, as close to real as I could get it because I went there. Um, and it, it, you know, it's changed a little bit in the last 150 years, but not hugely, uh, which is a bit shocking. Um, so they go up this incredibly arduous route over the mountains, right into the Peruvian interior, uh, which at this time was, you know, really uncharted territory. Um, and the reason that Raphael comes into it is that he is the guide for the expedition. He lives in the very last village before uh, the Quidding Woods, right on the edge of the jungle. Um, so he knows the area very, very well. Um, and at the beginning, he seems like a very kind of foreign, threatening presence. He clearly doesn't want them to be there. Um, previous guides in the book and in real life uh, had been killed for helping foreigners try to smuggle quinine. So he's in a very, very risky position. But very gradually, it becomes apparent that he's treating Merrick differently to the way that he's treated uh, other Europeans who he's met. And he treats him with kind of much more care. He's much more concerned about what's happening to him. He gets angry that Merrick's friend treats him badly. And kind of little by little, it comes out that Raphael has a very close link with Merrick's family and really with his grandfather. Um, but it takes a long time to work out what that is. And I'm not going to tell you because that would be a terrible spoiler. This still becomes the central relationship in the book. And I think the strongest term they ever put on it is friends, that it's a friendship. Uh, and your first book, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street, has a friendship between two men that becomes a romance very explicitly in, in the text. Did you ever consider taking Merrick and Raphael in the same direction and keeping in mind that Raphael is a priest? Not really, because Raphael is devotedly Catholic and absolutely devoted to the priesthood, um, even though he's actually quite a, a rough and ready priest. Um, he's also not really in a position to be in any kind of romantic relationship anyway, um, because he has uh, a very specific illness that will become apparent as you read the book um, and by the end he's kind of not not very qualified for any of that at all um, and also it was kind of important that there was no no sex in this book because I think it's it's set between 1859 and 1860 uh, there was a different outlook on this kind of thing in Victorian England sex wasn't necessarily a part of ordinary life and the very very closest relationships weren't necessarily sexual I think it's really important to not kind of put a Hollywood veneer over everything and, and push everything that, that extra inch where, you know, where we almost certainly would in modern life. It's just a, a different way of thinking. So I really wanted to get that in this book. And the whole book is about masculine relationships, relationships between men, Merrick and his brother, his grandfather, uh, Merrick and Clem, Merrick and Raphael, and Raphael's connection to the grandfather how how was it for you writing all of those different interactions and connections between men? It was completely fine because I think, so 
first up, I did it on purpose because I hate writing about anything to do with me or myself. <laughs> and I am, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm nearly 30. I therefore don't want to write about women who are nearly 30. Um, so there is, there are conspicuously very few women in this book. I was doing it for kind of complete escapism. And that, that's why I write it. I, I don't necessarily want to write to, to write amazing poetic prose. I want to write in the same way that I want to watch TV. I want to escape what I actually live. <laughs> so I, I tend not to write about women. But the other thing is, I mean, so many of the concerns that all of them have are just human concerns. They're not gendered in any way. I mean, I think anyone in any time of any gender could feel that they've been trapped at home. They can feel that their career is over after, you know, a particular disaster. Anyone can be frightened um, and anyone can experience friendship. So I think the it, it's not a huge barrier, I feel, um, to write about a cast of men because we are all human beings and all of the things that Merrick experiences so kind of all the like fear attitude sickness feeling trapped all of that i have felt so it's it's an it's not a difficult thing to imagine we're going to take a quick break don't go away book lovers everywhere love publishers weekly radio now on iheartradio.com pw radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news pw editors rose fox and mark rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Natasha Pulley, author of The Bedlam Stacks. Um, How did you blend the book's fantastical elements with the hallucinatory nature of travel to a strange place and, and altitude sickness that you had talked about? And so that's actually a really interesting question because it so wasn't in the book until the final draft. And that was written while I was in Peru and while I had altitude sickness. Um, And I'd read about it before. I'd read that these expeditions suffered terribly from altitude sickness because they sort of knew what it was, but they they kind of didn't often understand how serious it was. People certainly died of it. Um, And... I'd written it in as just a sort of like scene setting thing, not realizing quite how extreme it is and what it does to you um, when you experience it. And once I had experienced it, it went from this this tiny point of interest to a whole plot point. Um, and that was great. I think that was a, a real payoff for, for going out and, and getting really ill with altitude sickness. And I think what struck me and what really goes into the book is that altitude sickness is not just about feeling sick. Because it's oxygen deprivation, you can't think properly. And it's important in the book because Merrick can't tell when he's being lied to, when he has it the worst. And I found exactly the same thing. I couldn't tell if someone was telling me the truth or not. I couldn't think past what was exactly in front of me. And I certainly, I, I went I went to Cusco, which is at 12,000 feet, I was pretty good at Spanish by then. I'd been at language school for sort of two and a half months. But as soon as I was at altitude, I could barely speak in sentences in Spanish or in English. And that really messes with you. And I think it really must have messed with the original expedition as well. So that was fantastically important to get in. 
And it's very, very convenient because it means that there's, again, there's a level of uncertainty about what are they actually perceiving? Like, are they seeing something that's real or are they seeing some kind of hallucination? So it was, it was perfect, really. And what was it like being in Peru doing research for the novel? And you, you mentioned months at language school. You really went all out. Yeah. And I think um, months at language school was, um, it was the best thing I could have done because it means that you can go out and speak to people who you wouldn't have been able to speak to otherwise. Um, I think a lot of people in, in Lima do speak English, but once you get out to the kind of the old Inca heartlands, the sort of Cusco, everything around there, um, people tend not to because a lot of people there, or the people who I was interested in, who I wanted to speak to, um, they're Quechua. Um, the Quechua is one of the, the indigenous languages of Peru, but particularly prevalent in the north. Um, and they tend to speak Spanish as well. They have to but usually not English. So if you want to speak to indigenous Peruvians, you must go and speak Spanish because people will tell you things if you can, if you can speak to them in a comfortable language, much more than they will if you're trying to speak something in which they're not confident and stilted. Um, so I was really, really glad I did that. Um, yeah, so two and a half months at language school in preparation for two weeks travelling. It really paid off, even though I could barely produce it at altitude. So what appeals to you about writing in the mid to late 19th century? It's near history, I think. Um, it's out of living memory. So to some extent, nobody can come up to me, tap me on the shoulder and say, I was there, you're wrong, you're clearly wrong, which is, I think, every historical fiction writer's worst nightmare. Um and but the mid nineteenth century, or the, the entire nineteenth century, really, it's fantastic because it's so accessible. Despite being out of living memory, you can read all the documents very easily. English has not changed hugely in the gap between then and now. Whereas once you get back to, I would say, the seventeenth century, it becomes much harder. Sixteenth, fifteenth, much much harder. You you start having to read documents in Latin. If you go back further than that, you really need to learn Old English. Um, and I did do Old English at college, but I was the worst in my year group by far. Um, so that's not really my comfort zone. And I really like having historical documents available. And stuff in the 19th century is almost always online. So it's easy to reach. You don't have to go to a specialist library to access manuscripts, for example. So this book is loosely linked to your first book, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street. Uh, it, it could almost be read as a as a prequel to it in some ways. How did you draw the connections between the two books while still making The Bedlam Stacks a book that could stand alone? So they're linked because the first drafts were written at the same time. Um, so as Watchmaker was kind of taking on its final shape, I was just starting to write Bedlam. And one of the first chapters that I wrote was the chapter that has the watchmaker in it as a little boy. And that was very close to my heart. So I wanted to keep that. Um, I think that they're very separate, though, because I really didn't want to write the same novel twice. I gave myself a huge headache with the first one because it's all about clockwork and machinery and London and, you know, kind of all the Sherlock Holmes territory. And so with the second one, I, I wanted to say, right, I'm going to do something completely different. We're not going to do machinery this time. We're going to do plants and Peru. 
Um, so I think um, setting and subject matter are very different, even if kind of the emotional concerns are identical. So it, it seems that in addition to uh, uh, just life in late 19th century, we're, we're talking watchmaking and we're talking botany, that science and technology also interest you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, this is a really fascinating period because everything scientific just explodes. Everything becomes much more complicated. Um, and I actually had a great job for a while. I used to write advertising copy um, for Cambridge University Press because they, um, for, for a few years, ran a series of reprints of 19th century scientific monographs. And the account of the Quinine Expeditions by Clements Markham was one of the ones that landed on my desk. So there is a very direct link between that reading and this book. Um, but I, no, I'm an absolute nerd for kind of 19th century science, not least because from a modern perspective, it's quite easy to understand. And they often have these kind of wonderful theories that we know now to be wrong, but it would be so spectacular if they had been right, which is a great experience to have when you read, I think. There's a there's a moment where the um, the characters are talking about uh, creatures evolving in the same way in different places, and one of them says, "You know, it, it's like bubbles are round everywhere." And I thought, what what was it like to live in a time where you were just sort of figuring out that bubbles are round everywhere? It was yeah. just it was just a great moment. It's just I mean, I think it's in one way it would have been fascinating. And I think that's why we have this uh, kind of cultural nostalgia for, for previous ages, because you go, oh, wouldn't it have been magical to not know how this works, to just find kind of, you know, fascination in these minute, wonderful things that have now become boring and ordinary because we know exactly what they are. But on the other hand, I think you would have been afraid a lot of the time, and particularly if you were exploring jungles in Peru because they really didn't know what was there or who lived there or anything. So I think it's a, it's a real balance so between the, the, the magic and, and, I suspect, outright terror. And how did you integrate historical figures into the narrative? You've mentioned a couple of them. Yeah, um, I was completely mercenary. Uh, Clements Markham lived to uh, a fairly grand old age wrote a lot of books, uh, was involved with uh, all kinds of things, like way beyond Peru and botany, uh, which is very well respected. Um, that doesn't happen to him in the book at all. Um, so I do. it becomes alternative history by about halfway through. Um, but the rule that I hope saves me from censure is that if you change something and it, it becomes unhistorical, as long as it's not a mistake, you're okay. As long as you've done it on purpose and it is, you know, meaningful alternative history, I think you're in the clear as far as fiction is concerned. And it would be very different if it were non-fiction. Um, but the point really is not to be 100% historical. And I think particularly living when we're living, when there's so much about fake news, fake information, and really analysing what it is that you're reading. I think it's a, a valid thing to do to blur absolutely bang on true history with complete fantasy and kind of in the book offer a question of, well, where do you think the line is? And for me, the line is always much more historical than, than I ever think it is. There's much less fantasy than than I would think in a lot of historical fantasy because 
such bizarre things really did happen. Um, so I think it's, um, yeah, I, I'm hoping that it's a worthwhile thing to do and that it doesn't really annoy too many people. Are you planning to write more linked books? What else do you have on tap? Sure. So book number three is called Pepper Harrow. Um, it's on my editor's desk at the moment. Um, that is a sequel to The Watchmaker of Billigree Street. It follows the same characters, but this time it's set completely in Japan. So the situation is rather reversed. It's not uh, a Japanese man being foreign in London. It's an Englishman being foreign in Japan. Um, number four has also been sold, and that is uh, completely unrelated to anything. It's set in 1603, and it's set uh, in Blackfriars Playhouse around a company of boy actors. None of them were older than 15. You, you were just saying that researching in the, the 17th century is much more challenging, so it sounds like you really wanted a challenge. I really did, um, but I'm also cheating a little bit because I wrote my undergraduate thesis about this, <laughs> so I already know a lot of the plays and a lot of the documents. I'm not coming at it completely cold. We've been talking with Natasha Pulley, and you can find her book, The Bedlam Stacks, in stores right now. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior Religion Editor Lynn Garrett talks about works to ease your mind and soul. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Christopher Golden, the author of Ararat, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Senior Religion Editor Lynn Garrett is here to tell us all about book trends in mind, body, and spirit. Hello, Lynn. Hello, Mark. So. Hi, Hi. So uh, tell us a little bit first about the mind, body, spirit category. You had, you had mentioned that it's, it's really an umbrella category. That's right. Mind, body, spirit isn't really uh, so much a category as an umbrella term for several categories that relate to each other. Um, things like uh, occult and esoterica, alternative health, popular psychology, self-help that has a spiritual bent, and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about some of these. So the, the, the title of the piece is New Voices on Timeless Subjects. Tell us a little bit about this piece that uh, is running in this week's issue. Well, one thing that uh, publishers told me is that uh, one of them said there's nothing really new in New Age, which is what this category used to be called. Mm. Um, and what he meant was that uh, a lot of the topics have been around for, for decades, if not longer than that. And what they are seeing and what they're trying to do is to bring new authors to these subjects to um, refresh them. You, you just mentioned it used to be called New Age, but uh, what, why the uh, change in, in uh, title? Well, people who were publishing and writing um, these sorts of books felt that New Age was a pejorative uh, term that it, or at least it had become one, and that it sort of uh, implied that all the books were woo-woo, um, that they were uh, sort of out there and fringy, and the publishers and the authors wanted to say, "Hey, these these books are mainstream. They're not they're not fringe anymore." So everybody has a mind and a body, and uh, pretty much everybody is willing to acknowledge something like a spirit, but um, religion is not as popular and prevalent as it used to be. So how is that affecting this category? 
Well, um, although religion may not be as popular, but religion book sales actually showed an uptick. The AAP numbers that just came out showed almost 7% growth in the religion category. And that's, you know, as I said, these two categories are not really competing with each other for readers. Um, neither one is, is apparently poaching sales from the other. And we've definitely seen our share of religion books hitting the bestseller lists every week. There's something in that category and also these sort of more nebulous inspirational titles. Does that match up with what uh, the folks that you interviewed were telling you? Yeah, that well, it matches up with the whole trend towards spiritual but not religious because inspirational books are often uh, generic spirituality. They don't really relate to any specific faith, but they have sort of a, a spiritual um, foundation or underlay. So what were some of the uh, most interesting things that came up for you while you were researching this article? What, what were some highlights for you? Well, among the highlights is the fact that a lot of these readers feel that things have been lost in the modern world that are valuable, ancient wisdom. And um, one of the things that they look to are, are the first peoples or uh, indigenous groups. And they want to find out how those folks dealt with spiritual issues, physical issues, and so forth. And they find value in that. So are you finding um, that publishers are looking toward Native American authors and First Nations authors to write about their own traditions, or are these more outsider perspectives? I think they're more outsider perspectives. I didn't notice any of these books that were really, uh, or said that they were written by indigenous peoples themselves. It's more a matter of authors who have studied indigenous peoples and their ways. And what else jumped out at you while you were researching this? Any any other big, exciting trends? Any big books on the horizon that you wanted to particularly single out? Another area that I've actually seen books in the last oh, five years, perhaps, a lot of books, is uh, the spiritual relationship that people have with animals, how animals can be um, spiritual companions. And there are a number of books that highlight that. What were some of those books, uh, and uh, what makes them particularly appealing at this time? Well, in particular, there's a book uh, entitled The Spiritual Nature of Animals. A country vet explores the wisdom, compassion, and souls of animals. It's by Carlene Stange, and she is a veterinarian. Um, and she uh, says that animals helped her find her anima or her true inner self, as it's called in Jungian psychology. Uh, she looks at humans' love for animals through the lenses of both Eastern and Western religion. Um, there's also a book about white spirit animals that I found pretty interesting. Hmm. Uh, the, a lot of indigenous groups um, feel that all white animals have a particular spiritual power, uh, like the white buffalo for North American indigenous groups, the white lion and white elephant for India and Asia in general, the white wolf and white bear in Canada. Uh, and they are used uh, it, by shamans. I see. Well, that sounds uh, like a very interesting approach. That's not something I'd thought of as a point of commonality, uh, but that's uh, it's a curious global trend to have identified. 
And anything else that uh, really stood out in terms of trends or things that we should keep an eye out for in the next year or so in this category? Well, there are always there's always a solid number of books on tarot, which is probably the most popular form of divination, uh, looking to the future and also seeking insights into oneself. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they distinguish themselves through refreshed artwork. They might take a different approach in terms of the artwork or the theme of the tarot deck. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Lynn. It's always great to talk to you and get your expert opinion on this. Well, you're very welcome. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another fascinating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 